Hello, Buckeye Beer fanatics, and welcome back to another episode of the Pat's Pints Podcast. We're back for part two of the interview with Sean White from Little Fish Brewing down in Athens, Ohio. How are you doing tonight, Mark? Oh, I'm doing great. Back for a part two. Yeah, I tell you, I'm really looking forward to the rest of this interview. Once again, remotely, let's switch over to Sean. Sean, why don't we get back into the vocabulary a little bit, and could you explain to the listeners what spontaneous fermentation is and how it's similar or different from open fermentation? Yeah, spontaneous is definitely different than open fermentation. Spontaneous yes. would be like you've at least given a good faith effort to sanitize all of your equipment and rely on the environment around the wort in like an open cool ship to inoculate that beer. So like spontaneous, I mean, is most directly related to, to Belgian Lambic and um, beers made in the same production methods as Belgian Lambic. For us here, what spontaneous would mean would be like a beer that we do, we brew it like you brew a Lambic. You know, we, we do um, a wort of under-modified Pilsner malt and we, we have some uh, raw wheat as well. It goes through this like long mash schedule called a turbid mash. And then it's boiled for like three hours or so with aged hops. So this is, this is all very much to the, the rules and traditions of Belgian Lambic brewing. And then it is transferred to a cool ship which is a large, open, shallow pan. So it's transferred hot up to the cool ship, and it cools down naturally overnight while it's also being exposed to the open air, air coming into the brewery. And it's exposed to whatever dust or particles or resident bacteria, wild yeast live in the room. That's supposedly the inoculant between the air and the stuff in the room. And then, so the idea is that, you know, the next day you would come, your, your wort is cooled down, and you would transfer that into oak barrels where it would do the fermentation. There's another term, method traditionnel. I pretty much just described it. Method traditionnel is when you're doing all of the same things that the Belgian Lambic brewers do, like their rule set that they've made for brewing Lambics or brewing goose. If you're brewing that outside of Belgium, they sort of really appreciate it if you don't call it Lambic, and they get pretty pissed off if you do. I don't know. The, the, the definitions of spontaneous beer can be very, very weird. And I, sometimes I'm not even sure how much I really believe in them. I think at the end of the day, with us here at Little Fish, like, I want to make something that tastes as good as the best Belgian Lambic. Now, that's like a passion project. Like, that's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over the course of years. So, because we've already had some spontaneous beers like that we've had to dump and you know i don't i don't really believe in dumping beer if you can help it you know just like the idea of brewing something and then just like you might have to dump that whole thing out and sorry i know i'm going off on a tangent here but how sustainable am i being if i'm dumping 25 percent of the batches that are made in the cool ship room um that doesn't feel very good to me so or on the other hand you know with just a little bit of uh inoculation in addition to them going through the cool ship we might have some really successful beers in a shorter amount of time, and they might actually taste a lot more like that goal that we have of getting to be the most like Belgian Lambic um, that we can make here, you know? Doing something spontaneous and, like, not cheating, not inoculating, um, that's, like, a really lofty goal. 
but I kind of wonder how much the Belgians are really even sticking to those um, <laughs> those sort of standards. Like, I really wonder about that a lot. Take aside the part that you're being wasteful by dumping the beer. It breaks your heart, too, as somebody has put some passion into brewing it. Anytime you see oh, beer definitely. going down a drain, it's almost tear-worthy, yet... How bad were these beers, Sean? The beers that I've done in that method traditional, how many of those beers have we done? We've only done three batches so far. We did two in the first year. I was going to do two this year, and I, I still might, but you know this whole coronavirus thing is throwing us off a bit. Out of the two that we did in the first year, uh, the first batch I dumped, and it, it was nasty. It, it was truly nasty in a way that like you could tell it wasn't going to... It wasn't going to get better. It was like like a vegetal, like, okay, um, you know when you go to the dumpster and there's like a soup in the bottom? Yep. It's like a rotten vegetable, like oh, super ca- super cabbage like DMS, just all the bad adjectives. So that, that was a no-brainer. That was easy to dump. The other batch from the first year, it definitely seems a lot more promising. And the batch from this year seems more promising as well. Yeah, I think it's going to take me a few years to figure this out, you know. It's going to take me a few years to decide whether we want to do a little bit of inoculation or really leave them open and spontaneous. Such a gamble just to hope that the right thing comes in through the rafters that night, right? I think the real idea of it is you build up the resident cultures in the room itself. I mean, the the air is a a bit of like a fable, like a Belgian fairy tale, right? Like. Right. That's not really, it's not really doing that much. (laughs) There's just not a lot of like microbial load in air. Like I've seen this a lot with other people's spontaneous beers, like a friend I know, he goes out in his truck and like um, brings a miniature cool ship with him and inoculates from the air and then fills the barrels and brings the truck back. They go camping. I mean, it sounds awesome. Sounds amazing. The beers tasted like they were not getting nearly enough microbial load just from that open air out in the, in the camping environment. And so they were, uh, they got a shitload of, uh, acetone character in them. I mean, they were dumpers for sure. You would think like if that air thing worked, you would go out to like the most beautiful camping spot in the world and set out <laughs> your cool ship and you'd have like a beautiful beer. But, um, you actually usually have like a, a radically under inoculated beer that's going to, get bad i i have almost the counter story and you might know about this brewery sean but i visited maybe a year and a half ago uh, block 15 brewery in corvallis oregon and i've been uh, there because you lived in oregon for a while so yeah it's it's a great brewery and they've got a cool ship in the basement yes Um, they do and they make spontaneous uh, fermented beer and i was talking to nick the owner and the head brewer there and i i asked him about like the air and he's like he kind of laughed at me he goes yeah that's what the belgians say but that doesn't really matter at all you know we just uh, sprayed all the walls in here with the best you know mixed fermentation beers we could find that is a good idea (laughs) to do that it's really the, the microflora and fauna or whatever that are living in that room uh one question i did have is how rigorously did the belgians clean their barrels I've heard stories of, like, say, Cantillon. Um, they just clean them mechanically with um, some sort of chains, like stainless steel chains that, like, go in the barrel and, like, swish around or something like that. So from that to uh, cleaning them with steam probably depends on depends on the particular Lambic brewer. The whole spectrum, it sounds like. You know, it's really, really hard to kill bacteria and wild yeast in an oak barrel. I mean, they can just, like, live in that wood, right? So Right. We just do so many different things here. 
Um, and we're always trying different things. And I don't think that one is necessarily right or not right. Like, like I was saying, we use the cool ship, right? And we take beers up to the cool ship and then we do spontaneous fermentations. Well, we also use the cool ship for open mixed fermentation where we would actually use it as an open fermenter and we would bring a beer up there. We would let it cool down to about room temperature, fermentation temperature. And then we actually pitch in, you know, a combination of mixed cultures like Saison yeast and like mixed cultures. And we let it primary ferment in the cool ship and then we in, transfer in the it cool down ship. Okay. to barrels. Okay. Yeah. And that's actually really neat because you get to see it fermenting and it, it's actually really beautiful. We, we also, you know, sometimes we do like all the sort of like method traditional word production and we take it up to the cool ship and we cool it down overnight and then we bring it down into barrels, but we do pitch actual cultures into it. I'm just curious about everything. I just like to try all these different ways to make things and just kind of see what happens, you know. We had another beer recently where, you know, I've, I've always uh, been kind of curious about like some of these other breweries that are like re-fermenting a second time on fruit. If they have a heavily fruited sour beer, they might transfer that beer off of the fruit and then bring new fresh wort onto that fruit and start a secondary fermentation where you're, you're obviously not going to get anywhere near the fruit character from the first beer, but you could get some. And so, you know, we just did some of that the other day. It was, it was on a whim. Like we started a brew and well, it was like the day before the brew and we were like, what if we just left all those cherries in the barrels? Like there's a lot of good beer in there too. Like let's just leave it in there and let's, let's try it out see what happens. So I, I personally, I can get a little bit bored with like clean beer brewing. I mean, after a while you kind of feel like you're like doing like groundhog day, you know? And so <laughs> I don't know. There's just, you know, something about sour beer brewing. There's just another whole level of possibilities that are open to you. Word production is word production. I mean, and I'm sure, Mark, like you know too, like, and, and Pat, I'm sure you know too, even from homebrewing, like, making word is not that different from like one word to the next. It's, it's just kind of making word. Yeah, it's a process. Yeah. That kind of speaks to the fact if you go to Belgium, some of the, well, they're not technically breweries, but the blenderies, I mean, they don't even make wort, right? They just have somebody else make the wort and then they take it over from there. And you can make a really valid argument that the hard part starts after the wort's made. Yeah. All the artists. Well, we're all, we're all buying multi grain. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's right. you can't really like be that much of a purist <laughs> about it. Now we're on to a beer that when I went down to Athens a few weeks ago and picked up a case and a half of beer from Sean, I said, what what should I get? And he said, well, you should get this beer called NEC, which is a barrel-aged sour ale aged on nectarine and peaches. I'm going to you know, kind of turn it over to Sean from there, but I am looking forward to it. So when you came down, the reason why I was like, you want to try this beer, right, is because... It, it is a fruited sour, but it's it's not the fruitiest sour we've ever made by any means. But it's just the overall balance of all of the things that make a beautiful sour beer that, that really hit me properly. So for me, that's like the level of sourness. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely sour, but um, but not like overtly so. It has a really nice funk character. And I think it has to do with the fact that it is brewed with some aged hops. I don't understand the science behind it, but there's something about brewing with aged hops and then 
the characteristics that the Brett evolves those flavors from the aged hops into what we interpret as Brett character that, that is just very, very beautiful. I can remember having conversations with you about this very thing, about how when you talk about the aged hops in Alambic, people tend to think, well, you know, it's just for the antimicrobial uh, activity and it, you know, it's doesn't, it doesn't really contribute anything to the beer. But I know you, you don't believe that at all. You think that the aged hops add something very unique to these beers. Isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. When hops age, they get a little bit of a cheesy character to them or like sometimes like honestly, a lot of a cheesy character to them. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. And then that, that tends to also dissipate as they get older, but to some extent it stays in there. There is a little bit of that sort of like blue cheese funk in this beer. And at the right level, it adds a lot of complexity to a beer. And in addition to that, you know how people talk about like IPAs these days and they're talking about like biotransformations, like yeast taking like certain like hop fruity compounds and like changing them into other compounds. Yep. That's actually happening in Lambics. There's some amount of fruity character or like other sort of chemical compounds in the hops specifically that are being transformed into other flavored aroma compounds that we interpret what we think of as Brett character. Between these two beers that we just tried, Honey Bruin has just as much Brett as NEC, but NEC presents as like far more funkier because of those aged hops and both that like sort of blue cheesy character and also whatever it is that the Brett is making from those hop compounds. NEC to me just it just comes together like the whole beer coalesces in a beautiful way. I completely get what you're saying. And, you know, this whole line of reasoning about the Brett plus the hops, it isn't really aged hops, but if you've ever had like a bottle, five, six-year-old bottle of Orval, I mean, there's a lot of mm-hmm. flavors there that I've never gotten any, anywhere else besides a Brett beer. Obviously, in Orval, they don't use aged hops, but still, after five years, it could be some of the same biochemistry going on. I don't know. Yeah, no, it sounds like the whole concept of like Saccharomyces yeast doing significant biotransformations of like hop compounds that have like significant flavor impact is a little bit overblown, but like when it comes to like what Brett can do, it's, it's actually seems like it's not overblown that, you know, Brett really can take hop compounds and create some bigger flavors and aromas or um, just different or better flavors and aromas than, than what was there before the Brett was there. Now, how old are the hops that are used in this beer? So this beer is a blend of two very distinct beers. NEC, like also sort of like Honey Bruin was um, put together from like barrel components right like but i remember half of the batch is as a sour red and we used we used aged pellet hops which is something that i i don't do that anymore um you know we use when we use aged hops we use aged whole cone hops but these were aged pellet hops no but we're we're going back a long time because i mean that batch of sour red i mean that was 20 months old and then this beer has been in the bottle this is a bottle november 2018 yeah year and a half in the bottle Yeah. yeah so we're yeah. We're going back to almost to the time when we recorded that first podcast, probably. Yeah. Half of this beer, half of the beer has aged hops and half of the beer has conventional hops. Well, let's talk a little bit about blending. We talked about a few beers that kind of evolved in a way when they were first screwed or fermented. It wasn't really clear how they were going to turn out. Talk to me about how you approach blending. 
if you wanted to be like the best at blending, you'd probably just have like your entire stock of sour beer would just be like one or two mash bills, you know, mm-hmm. just a blonde and a red or something like that. And you would just get really good at blending. That's not what we do here because we're American and <laughs> we have short attention spans. So we're basically <laughs> ADD, you know, little butterflies that flit around from here and there. So I don't really know how to describe our blending process. Like some, sometimes we'll just blend like a blonde together with other blondes and we'll get something amazing. Other times we have a batch of beer that um, we think is pretty darn good and it was intended to be like its own thing, but like it needs a little extra element. And so we'll, we'll blend in like, you know, 20 or 40% something else. Yeah. Blending, blending is really hard to describe. Well, it's an art form. I, I should say, I don't know that we've said this for the listeners, but this beer is a blend of the a red ale, sour red, age 20 months, and then a younger barrel of sour saison, four months old. Yeah, both barrels were re-fermented on um, nectarines and peaches. One thing that's funny about this beer was um, the blend of those two barrels tasted really, really good. But once we got it into bottles, I'm, I'm pretty sure... It was because the one barrel was very young, like that four-month-old Saison. It underwent like a really heavy, like oppressively gross THP phase. And we didn't release this beer for a year. I mean, the labels say this beer was aged for six months before it was released, but that was when we planned to release it. And (laughs) there were six more months where we were just going, still got that THP, man, it's really good, but it's still got that THP on the end. And okay. we just waited and waited and waited, and finally it was ready, and we said, okay, and, and, and now it's like one of my favorite beers. But I think that's probably a byproduct of putting a fairly young mixed culture beer in there. Something about having young mixed culture beers where they go through a heavier THP phase in those earlier months of, of bottle conditioning. After all that tasting in the bottle, Sean, how many cases that you were ready to introduce to the public? Two oak barrels, probably lost 25% of that in fruit. What does that come out? Maybe 80 gallons of beer or something, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Not that much. No, I think it's very <laughs> noteworthy, and I found myself incredibly lucky to be enjoying this beer with you. I don't mean to sound bitter at all, but it, it is like a little a tough pill to swallow sometimes that these beers are not more sought out in America. And I know they're... They're expensive, you know, they, they are like... Well, there's a lot of work and, that goes um, into them, a lot oh, of work yeah. and time, and also just expertise and... I don't necessarily think it's it's bitter to just, like, recognize how good this... Like, I'm not talking about Little Fish beer, but just, like, how good this type of beer is and yeah. how much really, really goes into it, how they're, like, the least profitable... <laughs> type of beer you can possibly make even at even at the prices that we sell them for it's it's nutty it just it is what it is it is what it is that's why we we just we don't make that much beer and we don't we don't try to sell a whole shit ton of this beer you know it's just part of it is it's just for us yeah i found myself very fortunate to be drinking this right now yeah i'm glad i can drink it with you guys yeah man cheers brother what we do at Little Fish, I mean, it's not like, it's not fine art, right? We're just making beer, but I mean, I, th- I think it has, there's a lot of purpose behind what we do with 
just the way like we source our beers and like the way that we try to really support local and be an active member of our community and those kind of things. Um, those are like really important to me and beer is just beer kind of, you know, it, if it tastes good, it makes you happy. Then we did our job, but like the whole entirety of the business and how everything kind of like comes together. Um, it, do, it does sort of give me that warm and fuzzy feeling sometimes. So I'm, I'm just glad to be here doing what we're doing and, and like making it work. Sean, don't discount it. It it is art. Let me go back to a technique thing on this beer. When you're adding fruit to a sour beer, at what age is the best time to add the fruit? I think it's when you have a, a mostly fully mature sour beer. Part of that is like we talked about, like not all sour beer comes out well. So you don't know how a sour beer is going to turn out until it's pretty far down the pipeline. So you you kind of just want to wait. You know, you want to wait until you know that beer is good and and then add the fruit, which is, I guarantee it's going to cost more than like all of the other brewing ingredients combined. So for that reason, mainly, and then also to keep the fruit flavors like fresher, it also makes sense to just kind of put them in like towards the end of fermentation and okay. then let them re-ferment. Um, how, lo- how long would it re-ferment on the fruit? Like a minimum of two months because for bottle conditioning, like, we assume base carbonation levels on a sour beer, right? So uh, like a sour beer is somewhere around, on our calculations, it's like 0.45 volumes of CO2. And then, so when you add fruit, what happens is you get a re-fermentation. And so that CO2 level spikes for a while, calms back down. And by about two months, it's back down to that 0.45 volumes. Now you guys have been growing hops and different kinds of fruits on site for these estate beers has any of that wound up in these sour beers have you gotten fruit that you can use yet it's a great plug for our wild and local league um, program (laughs) that that's like one of the biggest areas of interest for me is actually growing things and like having things from our property end up in the beers and, and even if it's not strictly from our property, if, if we went out and like hand foraged it, or if it's from like a farm that is like literally down the road, those, those things all like interest me a ton because the experience you have when you're, when you're tasting something, right? Like it's, it's not just the flavors in a glass. It's the narrative, right? It's the story yeah. and the, the greater understanding that, that you, uh, get from understanding how something was made. Um, so all that stuff is really important to me. And also like not to mention just nature is beautiful and farming is important and local economies are important. And to a limited extent, we get to use what we grow here on the property in our beers. Um, for this year, our estate number five uh, beer was a 10 barrel batch of Cezanne that was brewed almost entirely or entirely with hops from our arbor. There may have been like one pound of other Ohio hops added like at, at boil. Um, that beer turned out great. What varietal do you have growing there, Sean? A lot of them. But a go lot ahead. of varietals, yes. Yeah. Uh, we have Chinook, mm-hmm. Rewaka, Cascade, and Edison, and Crystal. I don't even um, know Edison. We have, like, I don't know this. This guy, Bob Biro, who is like an Ohio, like, Sort of like a wacky hop farmer from Ohio. Okay. Really nice guy. Real, like real, like real character, like really nice guy. He kind of developed this variety and I don't know where it came from. Anyways, he ended up with this variety called Edison and, um, 
it's like he he kind of grew it or selected it or hybridized it to to grow well in Ohio. Okay. That's the story. But yeah, so so like a state number five, I mean that was um 100% Ohio grown, clean saison, fresh hop saison. Um, that turned out well, very well. I I really enjoyed that beer. But then we've we've also been like working on getting the fruits into the beer, and right now the biggest yielding fruit trees that we have that's the plum cot trees, and it's it's still not huge. I mean, in terms of making sour beer, you know, getting thirty pounds of fruit off of a tree <laughs> is not that much is not that much fruit. So we did one barrel of this beer we call one. I'm talking like one oak barrel of this beer we called Armitage Road Field Blend. And it was just released for the Wild and Local League Bottle Club. It was all plum cots from our trees. And then the hand-picked blueberries that we picked from down the road at our friend Pete's farm. And it's just like two miles down our, at the end of Armitage Road. Um, he just offered for us to come and pick blueberries. And so we said, yep, we'll get a crew down there. We'll be right there. But that beer tastes so good. And it's like when I drink it, I mean, that beer, that beer has so much meaning to me. I mean, it's like those plum cots that we picked in the, you know, the day we were down there picking blueberries, my kids were there, you know, and, but, you know, all those, all those memories are like imbued into the beer. If we go back long enough, all beer was local, right? I mean, it gives you a sense of place. And then, uh, you know, if we go to, let's say 1980, I mean, that was completely lost in this country. And so I, I think, yeah, I think I mean, it's, fan- and, it's and fantastic it's- that we're getting back to that. It is fantastic, and it's it's so everything that's happened in beer it, it parallels what's happened with food and you know industrial food and industrial agriculture and the the big trend we had towards just generic ass like made in a factory food in this country for a long time, and it's good to see we're um, finally realizing that there's value to to really getting back to like real food and and real beverages and real farms do you have any tips for homebrewers who want to try and make sours because you know one of the challenges is when you're waiting a year to find out if it's any good or not that's like infinity to a home brewer almost, right? Don't mess around with it too much. Unless you have like an actual like sample valve, I wouldn't be mucking around in that carboy too much. Just leave it mm-hmm. alone. You know, check your airlocks because over like a long period of time, airlocks can actually dry out. And then as soon as they're dry, it's going to be nothing but like a nasty vinegar bomb. Don't try and reinvent the wheel, right? Like get a proven recipe and just go with it. Like get, you know, a book like American Sour Beer or do like one of the rare barrel recipes that's probably on, um, I'm blanking on it right now, the Sour Hour. Probably use some, like a mixed culture that you would get from like Y Yeast or White Labs. Like use that mixed culture, but also augment that with the best bottles of sour beer dregs you can find. There's something about those commercial cultures. They're just not as um, as strong, especially in the terms of like creating sourness as you can get when you just like take like a bottle of like Dry Fontaine or, or Cantillon or even like Jolly Pumpkin or Russian River. Like there's something about just taking those dregs from those bottles that you really like and like augmenting like the commercial cultures that you get 
and just like putting those in your beer. I aim for something sour, something blonde. I'd start with a base of commercial mixed cultures. I would augment that with some of your favorite dregs from some of your favorite beers. And then I would just leave it alone. And how long? Well, eventually you'll have to start sampling. (laughs) Eventually you will, right? Yeah. I don't know, maybe a year. And then the other thing is like, once you're coming out of the carboy and you've packaged it and you've got to be really patient there too. There's a flavor. I don't remember if we talked about this last time. There's a flavor that I, I hate. I think it's just like the bane of sour beer and it's THP. It's like a long lingering tortilla chip Cheerios flavor at the end of sour beer. It can be created by Brett or bacteria. It is just the most obnoxious off flavor. Usually it'll, uh, it'll pop up early on in the days of bottle conditioning within like the first like 60 days and then it'll go away eventually just through the process of bottle conditioning. That's why I say be patient when you bottle condition too is because like you could make an amazing sour beer and if you're not waiting long enough, I mean, drinking it with THP is, I mean, it's, it's straight up gross. I mean, it's, it's like one of my least favorite flavors in any beer. I guess the bottom line there is if, if it doesn't taste great, wait. I mean, a, a lot of fantastic beers, if you drink them too early, are going to be somewhere between not great to gross, right? Yeah, I mean, there's certain flavors in sour beer that, like, once they're there, they're probably not going to go away. I mean, like, if you have like if you have a lot, like, a lot of acetic acid or vinegar character, that's that's really not going to go away. Ethyl acetate. I think I called it nail- acetone earlier, <laughs> but the actual name is ethyl acetate, and that's that, like, nail polish character that's not going to yeah, go away the ethyl acetate um we've actually found it it can be bubbled out with co2 um to oh, some extent because okay. it's highly volatile the last one i want to say was just like that sort of that band-aid like phenolic mm. that like super medicinal band-aid phenolic that like typically doesn't really go away yeah that doesn't that doesn't turn into something nice you don't really gain much by trying to blend those down like there's you might have like a good barrel, right? That maybe has a little bit of ethyl acetate in it. And maybe if you blend that into a whole blend, that's like, it ends up being like 20% of the entire blend. I mean, I'm talking like a little bit of ethyl acetate. Yeah. 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 You might be able to get away with that. Right. But like, you can't take like bad sour beer and blend it with like good sour beer and expect (laughs) to get something good. Like you just get, a whole lot of mediocre sour beer. Well, it seems like we've come to the end of our time, and it's just been such a pleasure to have you on the show again, Sean. Hey, I had a lot of fun. It's uh, it's really great to uh, hang out with you guys again, even if it's uh remotely and uh, yeah great to share some beers with you and tell you all about them thanks a lot yeah man cheers good hanging with you sean cheers guys cheers